Given that the essence of moral thought is to address and ameliorate human suffering and to expand human freedoms, how can we afford not to attend to moral clarity when it comes to international relief and development? The Center for Values in International Development seeks to apply the insights, analytical frameworks, knowledge and experience that already exist within the field of international development ethics to guide relief and development practice. Today we begin a series of conversations introducing ethics and development that will start to build an effective bridge between the practitioner's community and the ethicist community to the mutual benefit of both and to this significant improvement in the effectiveness of international relief and development. Other topics in this series will explore climate justice, inclusive development, empowerment, and democratic values. With me today is Jay Drydick and Nangari Mwangi. Nangari received her PhD in Development Studies from the University of Cambridge and currently leads the Center for African Leaders in Agriculture, which is part of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, based in Nairobi, Kenya. Jay is a professor of international development ethics at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, and he is the past president of the International Development Ethics Association and current president of the Human Development Capability Association. And my name is Evan Papp, and I'm the moderator and producer for this series of ethical discussions for the Center for Values in International Development. The first couple questions will be addressed to Jay, followed by questions addressed to Nangari. But this is a conversation, so feel free to address each other's comments. So with that, let us begin. Practitioners in relief and development are often very uncomfortable when the topic turns to moral values. If you ask them why, they frequently say that this is because moral values are soft, arbitrary, relative to local cultures, impractical, or are imposed, whether intentionally or not, upon the global south by the global north. How can the field of international development ethics make moral values something that practitioners can understand, see as practical, and be comfortable to work with? So Jay, you're first up. Could you provide your thoughts? Great. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be talking about these topics with Nagari. Um, I think we should just back up a little bit and we should ask, where does ethics come from? And... I think we need to recognize that it comes from some basic uh, dispositions, some, some basic abilities that almost everyone has. If you're not a sociopath, you have certain basic capacities for ethics. And I think two of the basic ones are one, care and concern for other people, and two, a sense of fairness. And then there's a third thing, that ethics is not just about venting these feelings. We actually have to justify these feelings to each other. And if we do it properly, we're justifying our ethical feelings to each other as equals. Right? That's really important. So, okay, let's put development into this. We have development projects, development processes we know they can go wrong, right? The first ones to know when development goes wrong are the people affected by development. And so they apply their care and concern for each other. They apply their sense of fairness and, and they can see that people may be harmed by the project or there may be some kind of unfairness going on. 
They may see that what's going on may, not, may, may be environmentally damaging and so on. So um, that, I think, is the start of development ethics. It's in people's, the, the perceptions of the people affected by development, but how that development has gone wrong. So how does that then translate to people working in the institutions or maybe people working on the ground, maybe in NGOs, maybe in agencies carrying out managing these projects? So they have the same equipment. They've got a sense of care and concern for people's well-being. They've got a sense of fairness if they allow it to, you know, to apply to these cases. They can see what's going on, too, and they can learn from affected people. But for them, it's a little bit different because they are the agents of a process being carried out, which is really kind of an exercise of power, isn't it? So for them, for people who are carrying out, who are managing development, when development goes ethically wrong, this presents a risk. It's an ethical risk. And ethical risks, I think, turn into political risks. And that, I think, is why people who are managing development projects should take ethics seriously. Because these ethical risks, they, for, for one thing, they affect reputations. They affect the reputations of individuals. They affect the reputations of institutions. But even deeper than that, in my view, they, they, they affect the legitimacy of the whole activity, of the whole enterprise, and of the set of institutions. So um, I think that's why ethics ought to be taken seriously um, by anyone who is involved in development, either being affected by development or in the people who are managing and carrying out development processes. Thank you, Jay. And now over to you, Nungari. Yeah, and, um, thank you very much for the invitation to speak here and to be in dialogue with Jay around these very important issues. Um, I really appreciate the way that you framed um, this first question, Jay, um, especially when you said, you know, ethical risks turn into political risks, which is very often the case. Um, but I'd like to bring in an element there around um, shared responsibility. So I think often it's a, it's a valid binary. Um, we have people who are kind of the development managers, and then you have sort of the population that's benefiting from said development intervention. But I think, you know, over the last few decades, I think we've done a lot as development practitioners to move to um, a form of participatory development where even those risks can be shared. If the project was designed in conversation and in partnership with the people who you know, are, are benefiting from, from the project, then actually whatever ethical risks might be mitigated right at the onset, and then if they do eventually come to materialize, can be um, shared you know, between the two parties. So I think the point that I'm trying to make is that Sometimes some of these binaries also, you know, lead to some kind of blame shifting that might happen inadvertently as well. Um, but, you know, development is, I think it's important for us to think of it as kind of a, this inclusive participatory process, at least even aspirationally. 
there needs to be accountability to the people who are affected. And uh, that is not accepted yet in the corridors of power. And um, what has been accepted is, is accountability to local governments. But there, there still is a debate, a really important debate that I think we need to cultivate. And I think you'd be, um, I'm, I'm thinking that this is part of your thinking too, that it's, it's important to, to, to really interrogate the ideas of accountability that prevail and to add to them uh, to make them better. Thank you both. Moving on to the next question. Development organizations purport to be ending hunger, expanding access to healthcare, or helping to protect human rights and a voice for the poor. Is there anything unethical about this? Jay, could you begin again? One classic example, so I'm interested to hear whether Nogari thinks this is uh, accurate, has to do with the, the, the Green Revolution in the 1960s. And the Green Revolution, as I understood it, uh, involves uh, bringing in uh, particular new strains of, of crops, of grains, and uh, fertilizers and the related kinds of uh, techniques. So the thought was, well, this produces a lot more food. That'll enhance people's well-being. Um, but um, what was found in some cases is that it was terrible for women. Um, that previously women had had some kind of control over fields, over land, over the way farming was done. And that just got wiped out. That, that women were in some places were incredibly disempowered when the Green Revolution was put in. And also it was the men who got the training about using the new techniques um, now, I don't know how widespread this was. Um, it, and the research that was done on this by women in the 1970s became very influential and actually led to uh, an increasing feminist gender awareness uh, within the development world. And I'm sure everyone knows about that. It's hard. You can't just hit one value right. You know, you've got to be concerned about all of the other risks that, that you may be running. Thank you, Jay. Let's go back to Nangari for her thoughts. Thank you for raising the question on, you know, the complexities of, of the Green Revolution, at least as it happened in, in India, which was, I think, one of the, the pioneers um, of, of, of this practice. I'll actually add another one. I'm, I'm in full agreement with what you're saying. Um, I'm, I think one of the fundamental challenges with how the Green Revolution occurred in India um, was that it was viewed predominantly as a productivity revolution. Um, and that's still the connotation that it has today. And of course, productivity, <clears throat> excuse me, and growth at the expense of everything else, even in the larger capitalist mindset, um, has trade-offs. And you know, the trade-offs that happened with the Green Revolution were, for example, what you're describing with women, and also importantly, what happened to the environment. You know, there was terrible environmental degradation little regard was given to, to soil health. Um, even things like the, the being able to protect some of the indigenous species, for example, um, those kinds of things were overlooked. And I think some of those lessons were hard learned, but I want to believe that they were learned 
Uh, and even as you know, we're thinking about um, the, how, how we can increase productivity, how we can enhance agriculture in Africa. I want to I want to stand with with um, the point of view that says that we have learned from the mistakes of the past, hopefully. And so we're not we're not trying to replicate them. We're trying to go in more environmentally conscious. We're still acknowledging that there are productivity challenges that the continent is facing. Um, there are things that we need to do around safeguarding soil health, um, biodiversity loss, etc. Um, so the, the the question for me is how do we strike that balance um, in a way that is acceptable to the parties involved, and not only to the parties involved, even to future generations when we're talking about you know environmental questions, for example. Um, so yeah, it is it is very complex, and it often you know. The way that it goes is that it's the people in power and the people who are holding the, the check that get to decide what we, you know, prioritize um, even as we implement these these strategies. How should universal values such as respect for human dignity be effectively discussed, promoted, improved, and sustained in the practice of international development? How can we ensure that these values are sensitive to pluralism and different cultural contexts while not collapsing into moral relativism or the idea that all moral claims are equally valid? Ngari, please share your thoughts. So I, I think the starting point should be an understanding that international, that international development is, is a process that has been shaped by our histories and the dominant values that we hold in our societies, the countries we come from, and you know, how we deal with, with, with the challenges of every age. Right now we're dealing with, with COVID-19. Um, so, you know, for example, after the Second World War, the focus was more on rebuilding communities and welfare. Um, during the Cold War, it was more about establishing the dominance of, you know, either capitalist values or communist values. And now we exist in the neoliberal age, if you will, um, where we seem to have esteemed um, the market society above above everything else, um, and we've enshrined competition as a value. Greed, you know, greed is good, supposedly. Um, selfishness, which is um, modeled after this kind of rather simplistic idea of you know economic rational man. And I will agree with the point that Jane made earlier about you know human dignity being and 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 and, and morality and ethics being something that's actually innate in humans. I think we can see that, for example, in the humanitarian instinct. Um, although, you know, of course, the, the, the humanitarian industry has, of course, its own myriad of challenges. Um, and also, you know, to help me answer this question in, in the right context, we have to acknowledge that international development is also about the exercise of power and influence um, in a you know, geopolitical, uh, globalized world, but we remain fundamentally moral human beings. So this question for me is, if, if, we, can, if we can think of development, for example, as, as human flourishing, and maybe even as an evolutionary instinct, then we can begin to cultivate empathy, which for me begins with reckoning with your own reality and your own shortcomings. Um, and then extending that grace to other human beings around you, um, you know, rather than you know focusing on competition. And if we can esteem partnership rather than than dominance in the pra practice of international development, which comes back to that um, point that I made earlier on, on you know this aspiration of moving towards um, participatory development. Um, and I think we also have to give space to um, 
the translation of human dignity into various contexts and figure out, you know, how can we have respectful conversations with people who are coming from different paradigms than we are. Um, maybe I can just give you a, a quick story there. You know, my first real reckoning at this point. Um, I was doing some field work in, in northern Kenya and um, there was a gentleman that we encountered um, and you know, we're, we're talking about education for girls in, in pastoralist societies. And so I asked him why it is that he had chosen not to send his teenage, you know, preteen um, daughters to, to school and he had, you know, preferred to have them taking care of the cattle and the goats and the, and the camels. And he said, well, you know, why would he send them to school when they're actually guarding family wealth? The most important task that they can have in the family is taking care of family wealth. And, you know, so there's that question of, you know, what we value, what different communities value, and how we can have that respectful conversation with each other. Um, and then, so, you know, coming back to the question of power and how we can exercise and promote these values, I, I, I don't think that we can talk about the promotion of, of values in international development separate from the question of power. For me, the question is, how can those with power um, actually exercise that power responsibly, humanely, with respect, with empathy even. Um, so there's some work there to be done around consensus building, um, even among elites. Um, and then also I think, you know, the challenge for minorities and for my marginalized people um, is for them to organize and speak collectively and assert themselves and, and, and build, you know, people to um, build solidarities alongside them um, in order to help, you know, promote those values of inclusivity, um, and, you know, uh, solidarity as well. Thank you, Nangari, and over to you, Jay. There are lots of critical resources that we have for fending off ideologies. And there, ultimately, we need to relate to our experience and each other's experience. Um, the idea that everyone should be equally free to live well, that's a very powerful idea. And, um, and we can see in, in experience, you've pointed to a number of examples where, where you can see that, that uh, there are real dilemmas, but ultimately this is a kind of bedrock. You know, we, we, if we can look and see what is causing some, what are the, the factors causing some people not to be equally free to live well? How do those factors relate to the exercise of power? If the people who are working in the development field understand that they're actually exercising power and um, this brings responsibilities to them, we may be able to make some progress. Thank you both and moving on to the next question. Development and humanitarian workers often hear maxims such as do no harm. Given that practitioners generally lack the tools to measure and address potential harms that might arise from development, and given that development often must be disruptive in its nature to change or harm an inequitable status quo, do we as development practitioners need more clarity than maxims such as do no harm? Angari, I would love to hear your thoughts about this. 
in, in, in the emergency sphere, do no harm means essentially avoiding um, the exposure of people to additional risks through um, your actions or, or your interventions. And uh, in development, do no harm takes on a slightly different meaning. Um, it, 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 it means kind of taking, um, taking a step back from a proposed intervention to actually look at the broader context and, and how you can mitigate negative effects um, on the economy, on the people that you're working with, et cetera, on the environment. Um, so they, they, they have slight differences, but you know, it, it, it holds in, in, in both sectors. And I think actually unpacking, um, practitioners do have the tools to, to evaluate harm, potential harm, um, and the effect of their actions in, in the development sphere. I think those tools actually exist. The extent to which they're utilized is, is maybe another question. How, how, how do know how helps us to gauge um, the effects of our actions? For example, um, there can be like distribution effects, you know, where, um, for example, if you are providing, um, I'm going to use the example of water to a refugee community and you ignore the needs of the host community, that brings on, you know, a, a challenge. There are also things like substitution effects where, for example, um, a humanitarian agency may be trucking water to a community that's in need, but the more systemic solution there is actually maybe to work with local government and, you know, provide provide water. So um, those maxims, when unpacked and turned into tools and strategies and, and ways of practice can actually be very powerful um, in, in terms of um, harnessing um, our, our, our capabilities to do development better. It can happen that, that do no harm easily turns into do nothing, which results in kind of a lack of agency or, a, you know, fatigue um, with maybe the work that we're doing. And so maybe some of the questions that we can raise um, with, with, with this concept in mind are, you know, what, what are the negative, when, when are the negative effects of, of what we're doing um, acceptable and when are they, when are they not acceptable? Who decides? Um, what is negative and what is not? Um, and that's also a power question. Um, how do we decide when to end an operation if it's not worked out um, in order to prevent further harm, for example? Um, and how can we engage the communities that we're working with to mitigate um, or arbitrate whatever harm is happening? What do you think are some of the most important principles or indicators that can be used to measure the current landscape of human dignity, rights, and social justice in any given country or community? Angari, could you please begin? Why do we have things like indicators in the first place? Um, they must exist in the service of a goal. Um, and that goal, for me, is, is human flourishing. Um, you know, globally, they, they are pushed to move away from, from growth as being the primary indicator of progress to focusing more on well-being and welfare, as, as Jay actually mentioned earlier. Um, but we also have to be careful about, about a reliance on, on these substantive measures because sometimes they don't really enable us to capture that full range of contributions. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about indicators and what they mean for leadership. I, I run something called the Center for African Leaders uh, in Agriculture of Color. And We've actually, in conversation with, with leaders across eight countries, we've learned that you know, the, the principles that are really valued for strong leadership are 
in this era around adaptive leadership, which is really around how leaders are, how nimble leaders are to respond to evolving needs when we have a crisis. Um, it also speaks a lot to their emotional intelligence. Um, another thing that was coming up a lot is around collaboration, which for me also comes with humility because to, to collaborate with someone, you have to first acknowledge that there is something that you personally don't have and could um, receive in, in relation with, with someone else. A third one was um, around you know, improving how we communicate, which um, is derived um, from I would, what I would call a, a listening posture. And again, this idea of empathy is also come up ideas around how can we influence without, without authority? How can we build the necessary trust that allows us to have a, a good influence, a, 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 an influence that brings about um, or, or gives birth to a lot more good than where we originally started from. Um, so, so some of those things are very difficult to get indicators for, but what we've done is to say, if we are able to support leaders to hone these qualities and these characteristics which they already value, then they'll be better able to deliver on the commitments that they've made for the agriculture sector, many of which um, are outlined in, in the Malibu Protocol, outlined by the African Union, um, around 10% you know, investment of GDP to, to the agriculture sector, etc. Um, so we think that holding to these ethics, to these values, allows for better delivery, um, better achievement of, of the commitments that we've held to. Thank you, Nangari and Jay. I listen to a lot of people who do work in developing indicators in the capability approach. And they are indicators of, of flourishing. Um, the bedrock here is actually doing this in a participatory way, engaging with people to understand through their discussion of what they, what people have reason to value. Um, on the other hand, a, a, a really grounded kind of indicator that's grounded that way in what local people have reason to value may not extend for comparisons, right? So, and if you want to do comparisons across a whole country or between countries, sometimes you need to take really stupid indicators, you know, but just because the data is available everywhere, right? Just to get kind of across country or inter-country uh, comparisons going. But still those can be um, useful for uh, talking about um, ethical issues like uh, gender inequality, for example. And I'm thinking of the way that Jean Drez and Martia Sen, when they write about India, they uh, use very crude indicators of gender inequality, but they use it in an effective way to show which states have lagged behind which other states, you know, in terms of closing the gaps. So that too, even though it's kind of very crude data that they're using because it, they need to rely on data that are available throughout India, it, it may not precisely reflect what local people in all those places want in life, but still they're good indicators of progress or lack of progress um, that's been made.
Ngarian Jay, could you please share with the audience your closing thoughts? Solidarity. Let's talk about solidarity. I think that's been an important theme in what Nagari has been talking about um, for the past while in this conversation. And um, so solidarity is important in lots of ways, isn't it? It's important uh, in our local communities so that we trust each other. Uh, it's important in confronting crises like the uh, COVID crisis. It will be important in dealing with the um, climate change crisis. Um, but solidarities um, are tricky things. Um, you know, we have around the world a number of authoritarian governments that have a popular base, right? That because, you know, what, what solidarity means is that you link with other people, but that may mean that you, that there's a boundary and that there are others outside of that boundary. So I think our challenge is how to forge uh, a, a kind of healthier set of solidarities uh, and solidarities that would promote worthwhile development. Um, ethicists are not going to tell you <laughs> how to do that, right? We can, we can point out what some of the values are that we want to have solidarity around, um, but creating those solidarities, that just requires like cultural genius, political genius, organizing genius. And um, I'm, I'm, we need, we desperately need a kind of political and cultural leadership that, that points us uh, in that direction. And, uh, you know, we can, I can, I can say we need it, but uh, I can't provide it. I spend a lot of time thinking about leadership um, and what are the values that leaders need and how will we know that leaders have been effective, you know, first as, as individuals in their own individual capacities and then also as representatives of the societies that they come from. Um, and and I, 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 I'm talking a lot about, for example, you know, when you're, you're younger in your career and you're developing your leadership skills, Perhaps one of the things that one of the things that we esteem the most is kind of technical acumen. You know, um, do you really know your stuff? And 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 that's what makes the mark. That's what sets you apart um, from from others in, in in your leadership. And then as you progress, you know what is required is more emotional intelligence. How you're able to bring people together, your conflict resolution capabilities. Um, and I think that 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 largely that largely holds. I would. Um, I would tra translate that same kind of trajectory of leadership to, to the development space and development ethics that we've been discussing today to say that, you know, as, as we're starting in the conversation, I think, you know, it's really important to ground um, the conversation as we've been doing in, in, you know, by matching a development ethicist and a development practitioner to, to discuss ethics and get that technical um, kind of uh, basis 
you know, to be really sound. And then the next, the next level now is where we're able to take this and translate it into our everyday relationships, into how we design programs. I spent two years designing this, this program and a lot of these tensions um, that we've been discussing today were things that I was, I was thinking about. Um, and, and, you know, to bring those, um, to, to acknowledge those tensions that exist, to be honest about the double standards um, that exist between, you know, the relationships between the, the global north and the global south, and then start thinking about what wiggle room do we have holding our ethics in hand to create, you know, more, more inclusive, more democratic development spaces um, so that we're not, we're not, we're not really, we're, we're advancing, we're not practicing the same development that we were practicing in the 80s um, or in the 70s, you know, and in, and in years past. Um, I think if we do that, if we can enrich our conversation, if we can start to be more empathetic, um, if we can think about development, not as something that happens out there, um, but as something that starts with us, with human flourishing, with your family, with your community. I think if you take those values and those skills to the very practice of development writ large, I think we'll be so much better off. It's not rocket science. It's just what we do to become better human beings and build better communities and societies. This concludes the first of five conversations sponsored by the Center for Values and International Development. We will also be exploring topics on climate justice, inclusive development, empowerment, and democratic values, all with the goal of strengthening the relationship between development practitioners and ethicists, because moral clarity matters. <laughs>